As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, can you believe that we are now on the eighth season of Rocket Ship? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it feels like we just started the season format like a year ago. But yeah, it's wild. And we, we recently completed our 400th episode. And now we're embarking on our eighth season. Yes. And so to celebrate the success we've had with Rocket Ship, the 400 episodes, the eighth new season, the growth in listeners that we've had since you first started this whole thing years ago, we should probably focus this next season on something like positive, right? Like celebratory, something everybody could feel good about, right? Yeah, or or we could do the opposite and focus this whole season on something that people probably don't talk enough about, and that's failure product failure. Yeah. And this next season, we'll be digging into product failures of all sorts, big, small, some feature failures to company failures. We're going to hear from product people who have worked on some of these major products that 
you know, they didn't go to plan. Um, but hey, they live to tell the tale and we're here to tell their story. Yeah. And some of the big product failures that, you know, we might read about in the headlines, we're going to give a little bit of a historical perspective about those two. Yeah. So we're going to look inwards a bit and try to understand the psychology of failure. In fact, Jerry Colonna, who some call the startup CEO Whisper, he'll weigh in on this. Jerry has been an entrepreneur and venture capitalist. He's famously appeared on the startup podcast interviewing Alex Bloomberg. Um, and he's now an executive coach to startup CEOs through his company, Reboot. Yeah. And... We'll even open up about our own failures because, Michael, I, I don't know about you, but I've got to admit I, I might have a few of those myself. You know what? I, I probably got a couple, too. And it all happens on this brand new season of Rocket Ship, which starts right now. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So what better way to start this new season of Rocket Ship, all focused on product failure, than to open up about our own experiences first? Well, hey, I, I guess it's only fair, right? We're going to share other people's stories. We might as well uh, share ours as well. So, yeah, let's uh, – I've got some stories. You've got some stories. Where do we start? Well, hey, by the way, I don't know any product person or entrepreneur, even the successful ones that – they don't have some sort of failure to share in their past. Mm. So failed company, failed product. I don't think we need to be too embarrassed about that. No, no, no. You're right. Having experienced failure definitely isn't anything to be embarrassed of. I don't think I've ever initially been in the let's celebrate failure crowd, but no, same here. Failing sucks. Let's be honest about that. Yeah, it does. And there's real consequences, right? Um, but if we're honest, there's real breakthrough products. They usually require risk, a lot of risk. And most of the time, things just don't work out. I think, you know, 90% of startups fail within the first couple of years. So when we talk about failure, and in the case of season eight on rocket ship product failure, we're really talking about the majority of cases here. We are, we are. And so tell you what, let me be the first one to raise my hand and share my own personal story. All right, let's hear it. All right. Well, there's actually a lot of stories I can tell, but <laughs> when I think of failure, you know, in general for myself, the biggest story that comes to mind is probably a company that I co-founded early last decade. Kind of weird to say that now. It was a company called yeah. eFuneral. I remember you talking about uh, your eFuneral days quite a bit, but remind me, eFuneral was a platform you created to help people find funeral homes? Well, yes, although it was more than that. So the major pain point we were trying to solve for was that planning a funeral, it's just an awful process. I mean, you're dealing with having lost a family member or a close friend, whoever it might be. And now you need to immediately plan this big event, one that's going to cost you a lot of money. I mean, the average funeral service can run over $10,000. And chances are, if you're planning one, it's not something that you've done a bunch of times before and, you know, something that you're really comfortable with. So we knew this firsthand because I had a cousin who had unexpectedly died. And so my family was put in that position. And we just found the whole thing to be really difficult. I mean, the only way you can even get pricing information from these funeral homes is scheduling face-to-face -face visits. And mm. the thing is, the cost of one funeral home to another, it, it could vary like thousands of dollars. And cost doesn't even necessarily correlate with quality. So, right. yeah, most people, I mean, they end up just sort of picking a funeral home that they maybe they've used in the past just because that's easy. Um, or in the case of a lot of people... 
they don't even really have a go-to funeral home, so they just sort of pick one at random. Yeah, I, I can't say I have a go-to funeral home. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so eFuneral made this easier. Well, well, yeah, I mean, so people could use eFuneral to get instant quotes from area funeral homes so they could get a sense of pricing for the services, um, which again, before you'd have to go you know, face to face and spend hours with these funeral homes to get that. Um, but uh, a user could also read reviews from real families that have used that particular funeral home in the past as well. So um, yeah, I mean, before eFuneral, getting those two things would have taken a long time and we made that possible instantly. Nice. And, and over time, we offered other things like know collection of end of life resources articles videos we even experimented with a little like concierge service so there's actually a real person you could talk to on the phone if you wanted to so i this all sounds fantastic i mean what what could go wrong well ultimately i mean we did fail i you know e-funeral was acquired actually it exists today there is if you you know google e-funeral there is a there is an e-funeral out there but i have nothing to do with it anymore okay but i call it a fail sale, right? It was sort of one of those things where investors got a little something back, but yeah. they definitely weren't making anything on it. I wasn't really making anything on it. It was just sort of enough for us to sort of, uh, you know, live to see another day and go on sure. and, and do something else. And so, you know, what led to the ultimate failure? Because, you know, I'll admit it's, it sounds like you were really solving a, a real problem, right? You had identified something that all of us experience and are giant pain point. So what happened? Well, this is probably a good time to bring in my old partner, Brian. Mm. Um, So Brian Chaikin and I, we co-founded eFuneral together. I was sort of the business guy and he was sort of the tech guy. And we we actually worked together for a few years at another tech company prior to eFuneral. And um, we're both early employees there. And we were at that company, each of us, a few years. I mean, when I started, I was employee number one. I think Brian was maybe employee number 12. But when we left to start eFuneral, there were over 100 employees. There was tens of millions of dollars in revenue. So it was fun, you know, the two of us sort of teaming up to be a part of that growth for that company. And we worked directly together for the last two years that we were both there. So we knew each other well. We were comfortable with each other. And uh, and so anyway, very recently, just about a couple weeks ago, I had Brian over to catch up, but he let me turn the mic on as we talked about some of those early e-funeral days, trying to figure out what happened. So you know we're doing this series on product failure. Right, yeah. We had a company. We you, did. Do you remember that? I, I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> e-funeral back in the day. It was a roller so coaster. It was a roller coaster. And we failed, but I actually, I think... You've made a career off of failing. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've made a little niche of mine. So you've made a career of failing. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As Brian put it. Okay. I, all right. That you have to know that was sort of the typical Mike and Brian banter that we would have during the e-funeral days, you know, come into the office and that would all day. It would be like, you know, Brian, I always thought of him as sort of the John C. Riley to my Will Ferrell little <laughs> stepbrothers reference there. If you're a fan and. I don't know. Got to I admit, I kind of missed that banter between Brian and me. For yeah, sure. I mean that's cute. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> anyway, we so yeah, we were digging in on eFuneral and how we failed and why we failed. And I asked Brian a question that made him think for a minute. So yeah, we failed, but was eFuneral a product failure? No, I don't think the product was a failure. I think that um, probably the market and timing and kind of the whole ecosystem around the product 
was probably our kind of downfall. It was, yeah, like timing, it's, timing is everything with a lot of products, right? So it's not even just like, can you build a product that works? It's, can you build something that works that people are willing to pay for and right. willing to use? And, and we, and ours was kind of an interesting product because it had that dual marketplace. Right. We so needed like, both sides. For us, it was kind of, we needed, it was the consumers from one side to come. We needed kind of critical mass of that. But then on the other side, also we needed the funeral home network to have buy-in as well. Um, and I thought personally that the hard part would be to get the consumers to come, but I think that we proved that getting buy-in from the funeral homes was, was really challenging. I, Definitely like you, wasn't easy. You had, I just remember you having conversations with, like we had this open office area, so we heard, everybody heard everything. And I remember you having a distinct conversation with the, with the funeral home where they said, I don't buy business. And you're like, okay, well, do you advertise? <laughs> oh, of course I do. I, what do you do? I do yellow pages, billboards, bus <laughs> yeah. signs or whatever, you know, bus seats. And um, you're like, well, we only pay you when you get more business. What? <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. right. It was like a bad, it was like seen as like a negative thing to right. them, like a shady thing. All right. So help me understand this one. Funeral homes were hesitant about e-funeral because they likened it to buying business? Yeah. So, okay. First, it's important to share what our business model actually was. So I told you before how consumers, uh, families needing to plan a funeral service, they could use eFuneral to get quotes from area funeral homes, access reviews, get all that information. All, all that was free. So family never paid us, but funeral homes to be in our network and respond to families inquiries with quotes. They were the ones paying you. E exactly. But we didn't charge them a yeah. monthly fee. So it wasn't necessarily the SaaS model um, that we all might be used to. Mm -hmm. Instead, we charge them a transaction fee. So if they responded to an inquiry and a family chose their funeral home, we would charge them a flat fee, which varied based on whether it was a cremation service, which is typically a lot cheaper, um, or, or a burial service, which again can sometimes be over $10,000 when you factor in all the costs. I see. So you were you were kind of like an affiliate model as, as uh, the middleman between the customer and the funeral home. And they only paid when the service worked for them. Exactly, which we thought what would be, you know, kind of a, a big plus uh, for them. Yeah, but they had a problem with this. <laughs> yeah, so, so some of them definitely did have a problem with it. So I, I think the thing was eFuneral was just so different than anything else that they've been exposed to when it came to marketing. So they were really confused mm. about the model. Um, they were used to paying for advertising. So things like bus ads, billboards, that you heard Brian mention, or, or even yellow page ads, like all of that they were used to, um, and they got how that worked, but they definitely weren't used to websites like ours. I mean, where ours was like one of the first of its kind, really. But I'm assuming that you explained to them that this model would actually benefit them from a business standpoint. This was business that they might not have gotten if, if you didn't exist. Yeah, it, it, believe me, I definitely did as much work as I could to try to explain this to them. But as Brian mentioned, sometimes they would liken that to, you know, sort of like paying for business, like it's some sort of shady thing, like. Uh, I don't know, like some, something that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, like paying for a billboard where they have no idea if it's leading to more revenue for their funeral home. Yeah, well, that would be just fine, you know, in their opinion. Right. Total, totally cool with doing <laughs> Interesting. that. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's pause here for a quick word from our sponsors. 
When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So anyway, Brian and I kept chatting. So I think that really, you know, kind of really understanding what your target, you know, kind of market wants and really understanding it not in a hey this is would be fun to have but in this is like a need that i this is something that's going to make my life better so i think where a lot of products fail is to not addressing what the problem is i I think early on actually i remember we had when we got into um what was it called what was was the incubator called that we went to oh 10x oh yeah. yeah so yeah i remember so um I just remember like the first day, I, I forget who the speaker was, but he was saying, describing it, uh, a vitamin versus like a painkiller, which is, you know, a vitamin is something you take, a supplement that is nice to have, but when you're in real pain and you have a real need, that is the kind of product that you want to develop. It's, it's something that's really going to solve a real problem. So I think for me, a lot of times, um, a product is, fails because it doesn't address the, the core, core kind of problem. I'm also a software developer and I love problem solving, so that's kind of where my head goes initially. Um, but I think that is the kind of the foundational failure is to really, you're not really addressing a real problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, like people talk about finding product market fit and right. it's interesting. You can find, I think you can have a product that functionally works, but you still don't find product market fit, which I think was part of, e- like to me, right. eFuneral, we never found product market fit. But right. it wasn't like if we tweaked features, right. it right. would have led to that. It was like bad timing, the market wasn't accepting what we were doing at the time, which that doesn't, it means we failed still, right. but it, it, I don't know that it was necessarily pure product failure. Whereas there's some other types of products out there where the market is ripe for it, like it's ready for it, and it's just like poor execute, or right. say poor execution, maybe like, Poor design. It doesn't solve the problem right. like you were talking about. I think for eFuneral, we did get the pro. And you know, you and I did the due diligence. We went to hung out in funeral homes probably more than either of us yeah. wanted to. You especially, honestly, than I ever would have imagined. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I guess the flip side is, it doesn't matter matter how good the product is if right. if it doesn't you know if there's not somebody using it or there's you know, right. kind of adoption that isn't happening which I think was prob- probably part of our problem. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we still fail, like, <laughs> for sure. And and it's like, d- yeah. So I guess it just depends on how you define product failure. If you're talking about, like, business failure, for sure we were in that category. If you're talking about, like, companies that didn't find product market fit, definitely were in that category. Right. Um, well, but, so, but if you were a hospice or a hospital that used the product, you're like, this is the best thing ever. Right, that's why I think, like, when you, if I think of it as in terms of, did it solve a real problem? It did solve a problem, right. but there are other pieces to the business that made it not successful as a business. So a failure, but it sounds like maybe you didn't think it was a true product failure, more like a business model failure. Yeah. I mean, look, in the eyes of the consumer, I don't think there were families out there that would look at eFuneral as a product and would have considered it to be a failure. I mean, they they had this problem and 
our service actually helped families with that problem. But but there are two sides to our business. So there are the families right. and then there are the funeral homes. And clearly on the funeral home side, we were never able to find the right business model for them. So when it came to that side of the business, yeah, I mean, I I could definitely see where you know, you could say it's a product failure, at least in a way, because of the funeral home aspect of the business. But um, I do think it's a great example of how a business can fail, but the failure might not necessarily be completely due to the product itself. Why? That's that's fair enough. And I'm glad to hear the story. It's always helpful to hear these stories and understand the like the why behind them, right? Yeah. And hey, we could do a whole season on e-funeral, believe me. But <laughs> hopefully this... Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully this helps a little bit. But all right, your turn. I want to hear a story that you have. Okay, so I've got I've got two actually. One, how I I lost one hundred fifty thousand um, dollars trying to bring a bootstrap product to market, oh. um, and then one about uh, really just bad technical decisions. And I, I wanted to start there. You remember Crew, right? Yeah, I definitely do. Yes. So Crew was the um, the freelance marketplace. We matched freelancers with um, product owners who were coming in and they needed some kind of app or website built. So we were doing okay, right? Uh, but our revenue had kind of flattened out. And so really what we should have been doing is trying to figure out how do we grow? How do we get more customers in the door? But being such an engineering-focused company at the time – what we did was we started to get excited by different technologies. And I remember the the engineering team went to a Cake PHP, which is what we were built on. They went to a Cake PHP conference and they came back and there's like, there's all this new amazing stuff. Um, and so they're like, we're going to upgrade the whole app, which I, I don't know if anyone out there has ever done this, but it, it never takes two weeks <laughs> or even a month, right? No. So we started rebuilding the app. And in that time, we're rebuilding the app to feature parity. And so we couldn't build any new features without kind of the grumbles, right? And so um, we took, ended up being six months to upgrade our app from one version of our infrastructure to another. Now, we were only a two-year-old company, right? So how old was this technology? But in that in that time, we didn't build anything new. And, and when we were done, we were basically back at the starting line. Here. So we we had we lost six months. Our revenue continued to just kind of stabilize. Um, and we really lost the, the momentum of experimenting on the product side. But that wasn't enough, right? So we didn't learn our lesson there. So so we're finally excited to use all this new technology. So we're like, all right, what are we gonna build with this new version of Cake PHP? Uh, so guess what we did? What's that? We redesigned the uh, the app. Of course. To feature parody, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so I, again, we, we kind of set out to do the redesign because we had some design aesthetics that we, that we wanted to do, but we weren't solving a business problem when we set out. So again, we started redesigning the app using all these fancy UI, UX techniques, just moving things around the app. But in the end, we ended up launching what we called Big Bertha. And we were so excited to show the world all this cool stuff that, that we could build. But what we did was we didn't add anything new. So customers really just got a different experience, um, a more confusing experience. We kind of moved their toys around on them. Um, so they didn't know where to find anything, which, which our support tickets uh, exploded. And then uh, again, we we now lost almost an entire year of a startup, which you know we we're venture back. We, we, we were on on uh, we had we had a, a finite runway here, 
and uh, we lost an entire year upgrading our our backend infrastructure and and redesigning an app to feature parity without actually adding anything new to 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 our growth right so there's a huge lesson when, when we look back on the metrics and we're like why haven't we grown this year well it's because we didn't try we didn't try to we we were focused on the cool stuff that gets us excited as product people um or maybe technologists but not necessarily the stuff that really moved the business and you know in the end um we sold crew to dribble and um you know that that acquisition was not unlike yours right it was um it was because we weren't able to really build this explosive growth company that we needed to find a new home for it you know what i'm curious to see in these stories that we get into from others how many sort of are attributed to well we weren't really solving a problem you know when, yeah. when, we, when we look back on it um i don't think i don't think that situation is necessarily completely unique you know even though maybe that should be what's all on our minds but sometimes that's just not what ends up happening yeah no i i think like we often get distracted and that's uh it's tough it's it's hard to deal with at times um as product people but that's why we have product managers that's why we do this podcast all right let's pause here a quick word from our sponsors. I also wanted to share the story of Brandisty, which was the, really the reason we started Rocketship. Mm. Was we had this idea to build a brand asset management system. Most brand asset management systems were over five hundred thousand dollars at the time per year, and and they were these big infrastructure buys. And so we we had the vision to build one for twenty dollars a month. And we were going to take in all of your your assets, your AI files, your PSDs, and we were going to spit out PNGs, whatever you needed in whatever size. And the technology worked, but our pricing model was off. So we were getting people to sign up, but it took so much as a bootstrap company to get to the point where we could pay our, and we were only five employees at the time, but we could pay ourselves a salary on this. And so we were an agency, we were doing all this agency work, we were spending half of our time working on Brandisty, trying to get this product to market. And it, it was grueling, right? It was a grueling year. And we, we built some, some really interesting technology, technology that we're starting to see today. But when we introduced it to the market, we didn't know how to, to market it. We didn't know how to really reach our customers. And so we were, we were just kind of flying blind. And that's initially why we started Rocketship, because I wanted to know, how do I launch a product? How should I be thinking about building this? But the real lesson here was we had this, this kind of spattering of customers. We had Groupon. We had um, some really big kind of enterprise customers who wanted a, a certain feature set. And then we had all of these very uh, small companies who were only charging $20 a month who really had completely different needs. And, and we as the product team just had such a hard time saying no to anyone. And so what we ended up was just saying, yes, we'll we'll build that. Yes, we'll build OAuth. Yes, we'll build, you know, your your advanced login and hierarchy system. And in the end, we ended up building a lot of, or we, we ended up building a couple features for each product group, but nothing that was enough to satisfy them or was enough to, to really make them happy with the product. And in the end, we just kind of tapered out and we ended up losing over $150,000 that we invested in, in building this because we were never really able to get it over about $1,200 a month in recurring revenue. Which I will say, when, you know, when you're venture backed, you know, not like we want to lose investors money or anything like that 
But losing $150,000 may not sound like a lot when it's your own personal money. Like that, yeah. that is, that's a lot. That's a lot of it's money. It's losing a house, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was, and because it was our money, it, it, it hurt a little bit more. Sure. Um, and, and we, we did not spend it like venture money, right? This was $150,000 that, uh, had to be pried out of our hands, but yeah, so that, that was, um, that was a real lesson in focus for me, um, was, you know, really, especially when you don't have that venture money is learning how to focus down on what is this product, what isn't this product, and then staying true to that roadmap. Because when we tried to build just a little bit for everyone, no one was happy. Yeah. It sounds like death by saying yes, which is oftentimes, I mean, that's a challenge for product people. You have to say no a lot and you have to stay focused, uh, whether it be on that roadmap or, you know, on, on the, original business plan, whatever it might be. Um, Well, I'm glad that you shared both of those stories. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we have coming up here? Um, As as we get into this series next week, we're going to be talking about Webvan, which is one of the most famous uh, dot-com bubble stories uh, where they lost over $300 million in one year. A lot more than that $150,000 we were talking about, too. Kind of makes my story sound a bit silly. (laughs) I'm excited to hear more about that. I'm excited to hear more about some of these other big stories we have coming up and personal stories that we'll hear from other people too. So yeah, I think this is going to be an exciting season. And you know what? We don't talk about failure enough. I This is going to be a good thing for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. So stay tuned. Next week, we'll be covering Webvan. Then we've got Intuit, Google Plus. We've got stories from eBay and Amazon um, and even American Airlines, which is is just an incredible story about 9-11. So yeah. So stay tuned. We've got a fantastic season coming up for you. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.